Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In the conclusion here of the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to fly through these texts. Okay, So again, I just confess, we could go back to the first slide there with verse 15. I want to go deeper here. We could literally take months on this section of scripture, okay? So I'm going to overview it, yet hit the most important part. So I just want to confess that at the front end. Not going to be able to really dig this uh, the way that we could, but that doesn't mean in five years we won't visit it again, okay? All right. So verse 15, Jesus, beware. That means be aware, Beware. So, caution. It means this. It means be on alert. Pay attention. To what? False prophets. False prophets. False teachers. False prophets would be those who say they speak for God. I speak for God. And they are not truly speaking for God. They are maybe speaking for themselves or speaking for Satan or speaking for a demonic spirit, yet they claim to be speaking for God. Preachers, teachers, authors, influencers, you see, they claim they are from God. What about them? Well, they come to us, so they're coming to us in sheep's clothing. Sheep are a common a way of calling the people of God the people of God. God is the shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd in Peter, which shepherd means pastor, if you will. He's the, he's the senior pastor. He's the good pastor. Pastor means shepherd. And so the sheep are us. We are the sheep. Jesus looked on the crowds and he had compassion. Why? Because they were like 
sheep without a shepherd. And these false prophets, these false influencers for God, quote-unquote, they come looking like sheep, but yet, inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Now, let's think about this. From the outside, looking at them, they look like sheep. They look like the real thing. They use the Bible. They hold the Bible open. They might encourage you to get your Bible out. They might quote a ton of verses, yet, upon further inspection, inwardly, you see, the outward looks sheepish. But inwardly, if we could peel back the outwardness, what do we see? We see a wolf. And what do wolves do to sheep? They devour them. They eat them. They consume them. And so these false prophets, these spokesmen for God, quote unquote, are all about eating sheep. And Jesus is warning us, be aware, be careful, be on your guard. Now, I want to read quickly John 10, because John 10 is the passage in the Bible where we see sheep and shepherd and wolves. I read John 10, 1. Truly, truly, I say to you. Note the truly, truly for later. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, I'm sorry, enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, his sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. If we are sheep, and we are Jesus' sheep, listen, we should be able to hear the voice of Jesus coming through people that claim to speak for Him. We should be that discerning that when we hear someone speaking for God or we read a book about someone claiming to speak for God, we should be able to hear Jesus speaking to and through these teachers. And if not... A stranger they will not follow. They will not follow a stranger, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. Now, Jesus is not intending, I think, to, to teach discernment here, but I want to teach discernment here because this is what Jesus is saying here. You will recognize them by their fruits. You see, we need to be discerning Christians. We need to know when we're listening to someone claiming to be speaking for God or we're reading someone who is claiming to be speaking for God. We need to be able to discern, is this person really speaking for God? Let me ask you a question. How are you going to be that discerning? There's a simple answer. You need to be so familiar with what Jesus has said in his word, and those whom he has commissioned to speak for him, the apostles, and those closely associated with the apostles, that when you hear a falseness, you pick it up like that. Something's wrong. That person is not right now speaking for God. How do we know? Because we know 
one, the shepherd, and we know what the shepherd has said. But listen, the only way we can know what he has said is through his word. There are those who claim that I have heard personally from God in a vision, in a dream. God speaks to me and now I want to speak to you. But listen, if it's not lining up parallel with the word of God, they're not speaking for God, though they claim, claim, claim to be. Let's keep reading. Okay, more on that to come. This figure of speech, Jesus used with them. So it's a figure of speech. But listen to this. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. That's often the case when Jesus teaches. People are scratching their heads. And so he says, again, so in response to their being confused, in response to their not picking up what he's laying down, he continues, verse 7. So Jesus said to them, in response to confusion, Truly, truly, note that, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So wait a minute. First he's the shepherd, now he's the sheep. Or, I'm sorry, he's the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Notice the sheep, the true sheep, who are Jesus, who hear his voice, they don't listen. I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes, the false prophet, only to steal and kill and destroy. You see, they want to consume and devour, steal, kill, and destroy. I came, by contrast, I came that they may have life, the sheep, and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the good pastor, if you will. The good shepherd, what does he do? He lays down his life for the sheep. You see, the contrast here is the wolf takes life, the shepherd lays down his life to give life, and life more abundantly. That's the difference. One is trying to consume and feed off of the sheep, but the good shepherd lays down his life for the good of the sheep. One is inwardly ravenous. One is self-sacrificial. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Speaking of the Gentiles, because he's speaking to a Jewish audience. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. That's us, the Gentiles. We have heard his voice, the sheep. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is saying the difference is the inwardness of these false prophets, these sheep lookalikes, they're ravenous. They want to devour. They want to get from you. They want to get from you. They don't want to give to you. They don't want to lay down their lives as under shepherds of the chief shepherd. They want to take from you. 
Verse 16, you will recognize them. So first we're to be aware that they're there. And now we are to recognize them how? By their fruits. By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Notice thorns and thistles are the result of the curse in Genesis 3. The ground will produce these because of the curse. And Jesus is contrasting good fruit, grapes and figs, with uh, thorn bushes and thistles. Figs come from fig trees. Grapes come from grapevines. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, here's how we recognize, we will recognize them by their fruits. Notice this. It's not that one tree bears fruit and the other doesn't. You got two trees here that are both bearing fruit. You got two people here that look like sheep. Yet one is false. And one, when you, upon closer inspection, you see the fruit is not good fruit. It's bad fruit. It's diseased fruit. Let me, let, me, let me just point this out to you. You realize that John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Tim Keller, and Joel Osteen all produce best-selling works. So how, from the outside looking in, if you were to visit any of those men's churches, you would see massive crowds of people. If you Googled their salaries, you would see massive salaries. So how, how do we tell the difference between a, a good shepherd and a false shepherd? And I'm not picking on Joel Osteen, but, but if you picked up Joel Osteen, any of his books, and then you would pick up any of MacArthur's or, or Sproul's or Keller's books, you would immediately be able to tell the difference. I hope so. I hope. If you're like, these are both awesome, you need to grow in your discernment. And I'm not trying to get a laugh here. I'm saying there is a real difference, a massive difference that, listen, one may be leading you to hell, but making a lot of money off you. And it ain't John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, or Tim Keller. But see, from the outside... There's a lot that looks similar. The Bible is being used. The Bible is being uh, quoted in sermons. There is a massive following. Like, we would look, I've been at evangelistic services, a lot of them, conferences. I've been at stadiums full of people, and I've heard messages that are evangelistic, yet, you know, you're like, this is awesome, this is awesome, this is awesome, and then Jesus had to go to hell to finish the atonement. Whoa! Wait a minute. And, every, and I'm looking around like, is anyone else hearing this? And they're all cheering and going, yeah. And I'm going, oh my gosh. This is a false teacher I'm listening to. And yet all these people are responding and cheering and happy. And what is going on? Well, discernment's not going on. Because listen, Jesus did not go to hell to finish the atonement. On the cross, he said what? It is finished he didn't say in a few days it will be finished as he's tormented in hell to finish the atonement oh my goodness now some of us right now are saying wait a minute we're splitting hairs no we're not 
The gospel is where Paul gets rowdy in Galatians, yet he will let uh, Titus go uncircumcised, and he'll circumcise Timothy. And now some of you are going, what in the world? How did we go from Joel Osteen to circumcision of Titus and Timothy? Well, you ready? Here it is. Some of you weren't listening, now all of a sudden you are. You see, the issue with circumcision in the New Testament was the Old Testament sign of you are a people of God was circumcision. And being that Timothy was half Greek and half Jewish, in order for him to be able to go into the synagogues with Paul, it was helpful for the gospel for him to get circumcised. Now, I find it interesting, like, do they check? Like, how do they know? All right, let's do a check. Are you the people of God? Like, I don't, I'm just really confused on that. I'm not even trying to make a joke. Like, does Paul say he, he's good? Prove it. Okay. But yet, when Titus, you see, the issue with Titus was, in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council was saying, some were saying, they have to follow the law of Moses and be circumcised to be saved. And Paul says, no, 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 this brother Titus is not circumcised. Are you going to let him go as the people of God or not? And he refuses to circumcise Titus because if he let him be, it would be by works, in a sense, that Titus would be saved. And so for the sake of the gospel in one way, he said, this is good for you to be circumcised. But for the sake of the gospel on the other side, so that Titus could be the proof that you could be uncircumcised and yet still be the people of God, he said, no, no, we will not circumcise this man. You see, the discernment is, is the gospel true and pure, uncut and raw? Because the Galatians were deceived by just a little bit of offness. Yes, you can have Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep the dietary laws. You also need to keep the ceremonial laws. You also need to keep the calendar laws. And Paul goes off in Galatians. Like you could just see him with furrowed brows, teeth showing, like bangs come out. And because the gospel is at stake and Paul gets rowdy. He gets rowdy. And he says, even if we or an angel from heaven come and preach another gospel, let him be accursed. That means condemned to hell. But he included himself in there. We. If I come and I have another message than the one that I already came with that's bearing fruit, consider me condemned to hell. Wow. When we shift the gospel even a little from the true gospel, Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, for God's glory alone. How do we know all that? Because the Bible alone teaches that. We're in trouble, friends. And if we make the gospel self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, a way for you to get what your heart really wants, which isn't God, but whatever else, it's not the gospel. Come to God for A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but not God. It's not the gospel. And we need to be discerning Christians, friends. Now, let's, let's talk about fruit. Okay, so you will recognize them by their fruits. One, is the gospel pure, raw, uncut? How do we know that? Because we know the New Testament well. 
We understand the gospel. We've read Galatians over and over and over. And maybe we've even picked up Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. Anyone have it? It will be on the book table. Required reading for membership. Okay. You will recognize them by their fruits. And he says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is obvious. No. So what's the deal? It's the tree that's the problem. A healthy tree bears good fruit. So listen, what does it mean to be a healthy tree? If you're a teacher, you're truly regenerate. You are born again. You are full of God's spirit. You want God's glory and not yours, even though there may be competition at times that you have to battle and repent of. It's a real thing. But your ultimate goal is to see the people of God, the sheep, fed, nourished, and growing rather than I want to take from you, I want to devour you, I want to please my appetites on you. And the deal is the tree is what produces the fruit. It's all about the tree. And you see, because trees are organic, they can't produce other than what they are on the inside. If a tree's rotten on the outside, or I'm sorry, on the inside, it cannot produce good fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. It's impossible. If it's diseased, or if it's eaten by bugs, or if the roots are not good, it will not bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Let's talk about 19 for just a minute. I think fruit could be taken in two ways. One, the content, which we've already talked about. Content, really important. But two, listen, character. Two C's, content and character. What's the character of the person who is speaking the content? Now, now here, here I'm going to go on the other side now. I, I have witnessed many, quote-unquote, discernment ministries and ministers who have a very arrogant tone about them. We know you don't, we're good, you're bad, you're, stu- you're stupid. I, I read comments sometimes on, on you know, video posts on YouTube and stuff, and, and I remember one teacher who was clearly proclaiming the Gospels, and, and one of the, this person has the IQ of a fish. That's arrogant, because so what if the IQ of the person is a fish? If the Gospel is right, the Gospel is right. Praise God. Paul says, I don't care if the gospel's preached to harm me. As long as the gospel's preached, thumbs up. But listen, we need to inspect the character as well. And I would say this, from my own personal experience, God has saved me from this kind of good theology arrogance. But I'm still being saved. Because I can get right back in there in a minute. But listen, I would sometimes enter into conversations with you, and some of you, I've done this, and I apologize. I would enter into conversations with you, and I would look for a way of disagreement, and I would just hone in right there, and I would attack you. Not necessarily for your good, but for my glory, my rightness, and for me to be proved correct, and for you to be proved wrong. You think that's not ravenous wolf-ish? It is. And praise God, he has shown me the error of my ways and I'm still seeking to repent of it. Because it's ravenous and ugly and wolfish. 
If I correct anyone doctrinally, it better be because I love them and because I care for them and because I want their good because I know that false beliefs cause bad actions and the wages of sin is death. That better be my motivation. Not because I want to be right. Not because I want to be seen as awesome or knowledgeable or any other thing, but because I love you and I love the person I'm talking to and I want their good and God's glory. Now you say, is that even possible as a motive? I think it is, if you're full of the Holy Spirit. But if you're walking in your own strength, no way. You will be out for self every time and you will be looking to fulfill some inward ravenousness. You will. You'll be looking to get acclaim or you'll be looking to get affirmed or you'll be looking to be proved right or you'll be looking for something that benefits you and not them. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is very inward, isn't it? Because on the outside, we're like, yo, we're preaching the gospel. This is great. This is awesome. We're shooting down false teachers. Yet, we want glory. That's why we're doing it. That's dangerous. It's really dangerous. And friends, sometimes the water is so deep, we can't see to the bottom. And we need to pray that God help us in this area. Especially us who teach. And is it any wonder that James said, you who teach will be to a stricter judgment. Hebrews has that terrible verse in it about the members of the church following the leaders. And then the terrible part comes. That's not the terrible part. The terrible part is, for they will give an account for your soul. That is frightening. It makes you not want to do what I'm doing right now. It makes you want to go um, work at Starbucks and hand out awesome coffee. Okay. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And so maybe we need some time for the tree to bear fruit. And then when we see the fruit, we can see, okay, this is not lining up. This is not cutting it straight. This is not uh, in line with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We know they're a false prophet. Put them away. Don't listen to them. Don't burn their books. Burn their books. But listen, if you come across people, and I know some of you have because you've come to me and told me, you're like, yo, I was trying to witness to my friend and they love Joel Osteen. What do I do? What you don't want to do, what you don't want to do in those moments is get out the hatchet and start hacking them up. Because listen, they're probably a sheep without a shepherd and they're not a false prophet. They're a confused sheep. And you need to help them as if they're a confused sheep. You know that sheep are some of the dumbest animals on the planet? They just fall off of cliffs and they need a shepherd to say, don't, don't come this way. And, and they need shepherds to go and find them when they're lost and lead them to water. And I mean, they have no idea sometimes that a wolf is right behind them. They're just eating grass. Mmm. Meanwhile, this wolf is growling, snarling, teeth showing, about to pounce on them. They're like, this grass is awesome. And some sheep are feeding on Joel Olsteins, and I'm just using him as an example, okay? And, and they're just loving it, and they don't realize that they're being devoured. Now, what should we do with Joel Olstein? Here's what you should do. You should pray for him. You should pray for that man. He is influencing millions upon millions of people, and if he were to be genuinely converted and preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ... One, his following would probably diminish, but 
people would be saved. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Can we pray for the man? Can you find it in your soul to pray for Joel Osteen? For his salvation? For the correctness of what he preaches? Can you pray that when you see him? Or will you feel arrogant because you have good theology and he has terrible theology? One is the mark of love. One is the mark of pride and arrogance, friends. And God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. Okay. 21, not everyone, this is scary, one of the scariest verses in the Bible, maybe the scariest verse in the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Um, remember I said pay attention to the truly, truly earlier in John 10? Well, when you um, emphasize a word in Hebrew speech, Lord, Lord, you are emphasizing it and emotionally making it intense. So, for example, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Martha, Martha. My God, my God. Lord, Lord. These people are calling Jesus who he really is. He's the Lord, he's the ruler of all reality. They got it right, theologically. They have correct doctrine. And Jesus is saying that not everyone who has good and correct theology, who acknowledges Jesus as Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And now you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Romans 10 says, if I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart God raised him from the dead, I'll be saved. Are you saying that's not true? No, I'm not saying that. Nor is Jesus. Paul and Jesus aren't butting heads here and conflicting. What's happening here is the emphasis is says, says, says. Not everyone who simply says has a verbal profession, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But what's the contrast? But the one who does two different things, again, inwardly and outwardly. Isn't that interesting? So you have one false prophet, yet outwardly they look like sheep. And you have true prophets. And then you have trees that look the same. They're, they're bearing fruit, both of them. But upon closer inspection, inwardly one is diseased. But then, now, here we have people on the outside who look the same, friends. They have good theology. They're sitting in churches. They have good books. They listen to good podcasts. And they know Jesus is Lord. And they have verbally professed Him as Lord. And yet, they do not do the will of the Father who is in heaven. Now, this, I know this is confusing. So let's look at James. James has been called, uh, if you will, the commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And having preached through James, I would agree with that. That's a good assessment. So in James 2, 14, James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says, says, I have faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? What faith? The faith that just says. Look, not everyone who says. There's a verbal profession, but that's not enough. 
Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. James says, what good is it if someone says they have faith, yet does not have works? Can that faith save him? James, later in chapter 2, says this, 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Some translations say tremble. So what's the deal here? Both are saying the same thing. I have faith. Both the legit and the false are saying, Lord, Lord. What's the difference? See, inwardly, there's, there's a difference. Inside the person that is really, truly healthy, to use the, the, the tree analogy, a good tree, you're a new person inside. You are not the old you. you. The old you is dead. The diseased tree has been cut down and thrown into the fire, and a new tree has grown. And see, out of that newness of life, listen, we walk differently. I can't tell you, there, there's, there's many, many people who I know personally who have professed faith in Jesus. They've prayed the sinner's prayer. You know them. And yet, where is their walk? They're gone. What, what happened? They lost their salvation. No, they didn't. They never had it. Listen, it's not just those who say, I have faith. It's those whose lives prove they have faith. And listen, our works will never save us because our works are not good enough. They never will be. But yet, when we are changed by the Holy Spirit, there is a massive change with our relationship to sin. There's a huge change. Now, let's continue because it gets scarier. On that day, what's that day? It's judgment day. It's Revelation 20, 11 through 15. On that day, many, many, not a few, not a couple, many will say, Lord, Lord, there it is again. Did we not prophesy in your name, false prophets, and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the difference is, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff for you? Didn't we have this amazing, miraculous ministry? Didn't we preach in your name? And didn't we uh, point people towards you? And see, the deal is this. Some of you right now are saying, wait a minute. How, How can you have a miraculous ministry and cast out demons if you're not inwardly changed? Well, Judas did. Did you ever notice that? That's amazing to me in the Bible, in Mark 6, 7. And he called the twelve, including Judas, and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Unregenerate Judas, who betrayed him? Yeah, him. Casting out demons. The power of God moving through him. And listen, there are many Many people who have, from the outside looking in, a miraculous ministry. 
And many people are deceived. Listen, friends, we need to make sure that this bottom half is us. Okay? In reverse. Did you know that John 17 records Jesus' high priestly prayer? And in there, verse 3, he says, This is eternal life. Speaking to the Father, that they know you and Jesus Christ, the one whom you've sent. What is eternal life? It's to know God. Jesus says here, see, these people, the problem is he never knew them. I never knew you. You you say you know me, but wait a minute, who are you? I don't know you. That doesn't mean he doesn't know about them. He's the Lord. He knows all about them. He doesn't have an intimate relationship with them. Now, here's the question for you, friends. Do you have an intimate relationship with God? Or do you just know about them? We all have our heroes, whether they're sports figures, whether they're uh, basketball players or rappers or some of us theologians, heroes. And we know all about them. Some of us can quote their stats and what they did last year. And we have their shoes and we have their books and we know their biographies. And yet we have never met them. And we don't know them, yet we feel like we know them. Like, I know this person. No, you don't. You've never met them. You never even shook their hand. You don't even have an autographed baseball card. Listen, friends, the invitation is on the table for you to know the creator and sustainer of the universe. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest, rest for your souls. He wants to know you. He invites you to get to know him. So listen, let's not be, let us not be satisfied with knowing about God. The knowing about him is a means to knowing him. Let us never let our good theology and our podcasts and our preaching, let it, let it never be the end in itself. May it always be a means for us to know God and to commune with him and to get to know him in a deeper and fuller way. Because these people think they know him, they have good theology, and yet they say to him, Did we not even do ministry in your name and for you? And he says, the issue is I never knew you. I never knew you. Could we quickly go to the next screen? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, notice the does. How do we do the words of Jesus? Well, not by our strength. Not by our power, not by our effort. And listen, you know what that feels like if you're genuinely a Christian, because it's exhausting. It's fatiguing. You're like, I can't do this anymore. Well, you, you're right, you can't. Because Jesus said in John 15, I'm the vine and you're the branch. And without me, you can do nothing. You can't bear any fruit without the power of God moving through you. You can't. So everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, does them, will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock and the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. So again, notice, I want to point this out to you because this is really important. This is the summary of the Sermon on the Mount. So he's saying, everyone who hears these words of mine, what words? Chapter 5 through 
this point in chapter 7. You just heard this sermon. Everyone who hears these words, the Sermon on the Mount, and does them will be like a man who builds his house on the rock. Now, now listen, some of us, because of our culture and because of our performance-basedness, we immediately think, okay, now, now I got to now I got to put the gas on my doing. But yet, if you look closely at the sermon from the beginning, let me highlight a few things to you and notice that all the way through, the true and the false believers are both doing. They're both doing. Listen, the teachings of Jesus here are summed up this way. Not the religious and the irreligious, not the moral and the immoral, not the sinner and the saint, but rather those who have been radically transformed by God the Father through the Holy Spirit and the person and work of Jesus versus those who haven't and yet are still trying to earn their way into God's favor, even by doing ministry. Did we not cast out demons and do many miracles? So there's a a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, and then there's the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. There's those who are angry and murder internally, and then there's those who are actually murdering. There's those who are lusting and committing adultery, and yet actually committing adultery. There are those who are praying, and yet they want to be seen by men. There are those who are giving and yet want the praise of men for their giving. There are those who love only selectively. Who is my neighbor? I get to choose. Not everybody. There are those who fast. Why? To be seen by others. There are those who judge and condemn wrongly. And you see, the idea is not that there's these people who are super immoral, super irreligious, super foul. No, these are religious people doing all the quote-unquote right things. They're praying, they're giving, they're um, teaching, they're attending church gatherings. Yet, see, inwardly, they're all doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it for the praise of man. They're doing it to be seen by others. They're doing it for their own glory. They're hiding their sin, but outwardly they look great. Right? They're hating people and murdering them. They're lusting and committing adultery. You see, the inwardness is what counts here, and that's what Jesus is saying. It's not about the external, the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount. So don't think to yourself, I'm on the rock, if you're simply thinking, I pray, I give, I read, I don't judge and condemn, I don't commit adultery. I've never murdered. Because all these people in this sermon didn't do any of those things either or did those things and were still condemned. You see, why are we doing what we're doing here, friends? The inward is what matters to God and he sees the inward brilliantly clear as if it was the outward. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So who are those who build their house on the rock? It's those of us who have been changed and transformed and know that by my own efforts and in my own strength, I am on the sand. And my foundation is dangerously in peril. 
I talked to a friend who went to Haiti uh, on a missions trip. Remember the big earthquake and there was this massive devastation in Haiti and you, you saw the videos and the pictures. Um, I didn't know this, but my friend said, do you know why all the, the structures collapsed when the earthquake hit? They don't dig foundations. They, they were just sitting on top of the ground, all the buildings. There's no building code there. And so they would just start with a row of bricks and then add to the bricks. And, and so there's no steadiness. There's no soundness. And when that earthquake hit, everything came down. And then on top of that, he said that the bricks are technically sand that are just crumbling apart. And so though I, I, I have encountered code people to my peril, listen, the code on buildings in this country is amazingly helpful for people though it's very costly and very time-consuming. Friends, it's easy to build your house on sand. You just start throwing up bricks and then put more on top of it. And, and see, the idea is, on the outside, they both look like houses. Here's the two again. From the outside, looking in, they're the same. There's two houses. They look great. They're both perfect. But yet... What's, what's going to be the difference? What's going to be the difference? 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I think two senses are, are here. One is when the troubles of life, when the storms of life come, when suffering hits. Listen, if you don't have the foundation and you're simply relying on yourself and your own goodness, your own power, your own religious activities, quote-unquote, you're going to crumble. And maybe for some of you, that would be the best thing that ever happened because then you would truly reach out in a sense of utter helplessness. And you would say, all I have is Christ. I got nothing else. But the second sense is even worse, and I think this is actually more true to the context. I think it's Judgment Day. Because earlier, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, on that day. And notice, Jesus said, who said to me? He's the judge. Not everyone who says to me on Judgment Day, Lord, Lord. Friends, we need to make sure that we are totally abandoning anything, even our goodness, and coming to Christ alone for salvation. I talked to my neighbor yesterday. Some of you were in my Gospel Center community. We prayed, and we prayed more than once for my neighbor. And I, I finally got a chance to give her the Gospel. Uh, it was fantastic. I, I, I got her a book, a Tim Keller book, of course. And I, she explained to me, I'm not religious, not religious. And I said to her, this is going to sound really weird. I'm not religious either. Huh? No, I'm not. And then I explained to her what religion is. I, I said, we don't try to make ourselves approved to God by what we do. Yeah, we go to, go to church gatherings and worship. Yeah, we read the Bible. Yeah, we pray. Yeah, we have Bible studies. Our people park in your yard practically all the time. Thank you for letting them park there. So yeah, we, we do activities, but listen, we're not trying to get God's approval by these activities. And so I said, I'm not religious either. And I had the chance then to explain the gospel. It's only by Jesus' works alone 
that we have salvation. And I said to her, you know that the cross is a universal symbol. I said, the reason Jesus went to the cross was to pay for the sins of all those who would ever trust in him. And I finally gave her the gospel. It was awesome. And, and, and I wish I could tell you, she fell on her knees, cried, and, and we confessed Jesus together, but we didn't. Rather, she said, you're, you're not gonna show up on my door in a suit, are you? And I said, no. I said, Megan and I are thankful we have dogs when those people come up the street too. And that's, that's true, we let them out. Because I, I don't want to argue with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Man, I've done that already, it doesn't work. And if you're that dude, that's fine. Do your thing, I love you. If God's called you to that, good. But listen, we left her with the book and I said, listen, I would love to answer your questions if you have any. If you have any questions, I would love to answer them. And I left her with a good, really gospel-centered resource. And every time now that I've thought about her or gone outside and looked at her house, I've prayed for her. And I'm going to keep praying for her. But see, the difference here is between religious people who do all the quote-unquote right stuff, and some of them even have good theology, yet inwardly they are bad trees and they are on sand. So friends, what's our hope? Our hope is Jesus alone. The, The people who put to practice what Jesus has said here are the people who know that it's blessed are those who are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you're bankrupt in spirit. You've got nothing to offer to God. But Jesus is rich and wealthy and he shares the riches of his goodness with us. So you can lay your goodness down and pick his up. You can stop talking about yourself as if you're the Savior and cling to the Savior. You could stop worshiping false and functional saviors and start worshiping the only Savior who can save your souls and give you life, the good shepherd. And so, friends, let us not fall into the trap of morality and goodness. Morality and goodness. Trying to earn God's favor by what we do. And when Jesus finished these sayings, you could see the crowds, mouths open, eyes open. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, blown away, rocked. Why? Because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The authority here is because he is the one who created all reality. And he has come to show us how reality works and how his kingdom works and how life will work in his kingdom best. Friends, let's go to Jesus, the only one who was righteous and the only one who could pay for our sins, the only one who has paid for our sins, And he gives us his righteousness as a gift. Friends, we have a good and glorious message to tell people. That it's all been done for them. And let's truly cling to Jesus.